Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 323 featuring David Yermak, professor and chair of the finance department at NYU Stern School of Business. A really, really knowledgeable person, especially in the area of cryptocurrency and part of our series on NFTs that are going to become very important as we go. So this is going to be the second episode. I highly recommend if you're just listening to this for the first time, you may want to go back to our first episode on this series, which was episode number 320 with uh, my good friend Sally Slade, where she goes into her experience of what it takes to just put something up as an NFT and all the little steps that she had to take. In this particular episode, we talk about the entire way that the DeFi world is going to affect artists and NFTs and all of that. And it's a, a, very, a much more in-depth uh, look at some of those things spoken from a really great, great, knowledgeable person. Kristen, what did you think of David and explaining this to us finally? Well, yes, like you said, he's a professor, so it's really like easy to understand. Um, right. And someone like me who's not in understanding all this right. um he goes into like the cryptocurrency blockchains and nfts and you guys really get in depth in the um ethereum blockchain which i hadn't heard of before <laughs> which right. I probably yeah have, but that was really but interesting really really interesting and we talk a lot about what this means and how this is going to affect artists a lot of artists out there are trying to wonder what is my role in this world and you know what does it mean including things like you know what is the carbon footprint of an nft and we get into depth about that as well so uh definitely worth listening to uh i do want to note that this particular podcast was not exactly recorded uh we had a little bit of a technical issues but luckily riverside was able to give us the online backup which is still pretty good so it's not quite at the same standard that we normally do our podcast but it's still pretty pretty great. And we, the information we get from David is is really, really cool as well. Uh, great. Cool. Look, Kristen, what kind of, uh, we have a couple of announcements. What's going on right now? Yeah. So um, at chaos.com slash events, um, actually, this won't be on our website, but it's the real-time conference that you're going to be speaking at. Um, yeah. And it is this week. Uh, and it will be actually starting today on the 26th and then also going the 27th and 28th. Um, yep. And you can find this out at realtimeconference.com. Perfect. And registration is free. So go ahead and sign up right away if you'd like to. I am giving a talk on April 28th at 7.20 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So you can do the math as to how that affects your time zone. But my talk is going to be a panel that I'm going to be doing with some really great people. Uh, and it's going to be about architecture's role inside of the metaverse. So that's going to be a really fun thing. And we have some really great panelists. So make sure and check it out. Again, go to realtimeconference.com to register and see you hopefully at that panel. Uh, we've got a couple of product announcements uh, or one product announcement. What's going on, Kristen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can find these out at chaos.com. We do have an update to Phoenix uh, 4 for 3DS Max and Maya. Um, it has new and improved features, um, which include active bodies collision, color absor absorption, uh, massive wave force, and uh, support for Autodesk's 3DS Max in Maya 2022. Perfect. So that's great. Go check it out at chaos.com, our update to Phoenix for our fabulous fluid solver. Uh, if people want to know more about the podcast, Kristen, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash CG Garage podcast or chaos.com slash CG Garage and youtube.com slash chaos group TV. 
Perfect. And if you guys have ideas of other podcasts that you'd like to hear, or you want to talk more about NFTs and have other ideas of other people that you'd like to have on as part of that conversation, let us know. We uh, Email is usually the best thing to do to, to approach us there. Labs at chaosgroup.com is the way to do it. And if you guys have review, want to give leave us a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, we'd love to have that. Rate us and review us. Share us with your friends. All of those are very welcome. <laughs> All right. That being said, please enjoy this awesome podcast with David Yermak, professor and finance chair at NYU Stern School of Business. Welcome to another CG Garage, where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're going to fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. I really appreciate you being able to do this. This is a really big deal for us because uh, in the world of uh, CG artists right now, this is kind of a big unknown territory and it's really scary and there's a lot of things going on and we kind of need a little bit of guidance from an expert area in this. And I think that this, this is going to be very, very interesting for us to do, uh, especially not... Uh, CG artists more specifically have always felt slightly marginalized uh, in the world of art itself because art has always been such a physical thing uh, and CG art has always been something that represents a lot of artistic integrity but has never been able to find a way to 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 be represented in some ways. So a lot of people are looking at NFTs right now as not just a means of making money but also of validating the value of the art that they create. Uh, and I think that's kind of a big thing for us and really would love to be able to demystify everything or decrypt the entire DeFi area, if you will. Um, but if you can, can you give us a little bit of a background of your area, your history, where, where you came from, and sort of where, when did you start to get interested in the entire you know, crypto uh, world or the DeFi world? So I began to follow crypto really through the newspapers, and Bitcoin was launched in 2009, by 2011 and 2012, you would read about it occasionally in the news media, often in connection with black markets and drugs and so forth. And I connected it pretty quickly to a course in high school back in the 1970s in protest literature. Um, we had read a novel by Thomas Pynchon called The Crying of Lot 49, which is about an underground secret post office where a group of libertarians rebel against the government and there's secret mailboxes and you know, all this covert behavior. And I read about Bitcoin and I said, it's the same story. This is the crying of Lot 49, except it's not a post office. It's a bank, but everything else okay. is the same. And I was intrigued by what they were trying to accomplish to go off the grid and start a parallel financial system that was run only by cryptography. And... I decided to learn more about it because it didn't go away. I thought the thing would kind of blow up on its own, but when it began to grow and was clearly in some type of stable equilibrium, I thought we'd better understand this technology because I'm a finance professor. This is something very new. And once I got into the details and understood what they had done and what the potential was, there was no turning back. I said, I came to the same conclusion that a lot of folks have was that 
this changes everything. You know, the whole way that people have transferred value is going to be different. And you could tell that in 20 to 30 years, the whole financial system would migrate onto this platform because it was such an improvement. But the journey from here to there was likely to be extremely bumpy with um, controversial regulatory problems and the old industry trying to protect its position, all of which makes for great academic teaching and research opportunities. So I saw this as a point in my own career that I could pivot to this brand new area and be one of the early adopters in a field that looked like it could become very important. Now, almost nobody agreed with me at that time, but on the other hand, my whole career has been spent chasing after wild research ideas that seem you know, completely improbable to people, but I've nevertheless turned them into very well-read academic papers. And so a lot of people saw this was just another crazy idea. And um, within six months, I was sitting next to Janet Yellen in this off-the-record meeting of all the world's central bankers discussing okay. this topic. And I knew at that point that this was for real. This was very serious. I observed that all the big central bankers in the room were incredibly well-informed. And the common feeling they had about this was fear. That, you know, they they understood the existential threat it posed to the financial system to the central banks themselves. And a lot of that concern, in fact, has been borne out. And you you see today that the central banks themselves are starting to issue digital currency using the platform introduced by Bitcoin. The, the People's Bank of China, for instance, is already doing this. So we began teaching a course in 2014 at NYU, which at the time was the first university level course in the world on digital currency, mostly on Bitcoin at that point. And this has grown enormously. We offer the course multiple times a year, but have an entire program now of FinTech, as we call it, mm -hmm. which involves things like machine learning and artificial intelligence. And there's a whole range of digital assets. And this sort of brings us to the point of the podcast. One one aspect, and we've always had at least one class a semester on this, is the so-called NFT or the digital art market, where there's a range of issues, including the provenance of fine art, the creation of ledgers to document ownership and to kick royalties back to the original creators of the art, the tracking of viewership of media, um, both audio and the music world and video in the um, world of TV commercials and motion pictures and so forth. Many, many applications of the blockchain record keeping technology. And the one that has become very hot at the moment is the NFT market, the non-fungible tokens. But we've yeah. been actually covering these for three or four years now, ever since CryptoKitties burst onto sure. the scene. So, uh, so it, it, keep in mind that like like a lot of the people who are, who are listening to this don't necessarily have a financial background or have an understanding of, of even just how the bank works, really, in right. some ways. And so there's a lot of sort of interesting things that I sort of want to help help baby step sure. them there because I think NFTs are, yeah, I'm, I've I've gone down the rabbit hole a little bit, and it's very hard because sometimes I watch these videos and I see a lot of people who are talking, including yourself, and you've done a fantastic job. Uh, but I, I'm reminded 
my background is actually both art and mathematics. And I remember one of my old uh, math professors telling me at one point when he was trying to teach some very complex math problems, he says, if you can't explain what you do to a, to a, a seven-year-old, then you're probably a con man. And sometimes I listen to some of these uh, conversations yeah. about NFTs and I'm like, wait a minute, what are they saying? I feel like they're trying to, they're hiding something from me. So I really think it'd be helpful if we can break it down a little bit. And so first of all, can you explain how does DeFi work? Like what, what is it and how is it different from a normal financial system with a bank and how did the, you know, and, and the cryptography, how did that sort of help it separate itself from a normal financial system in some ways? Well, DeFi stands for decentralized finance. Right. And if you want to go back to Bitcoin, which is really where this all begins from, Bitcoin is a global computer network. And you can have any number of people, anyone in the world with an internet connection can join this network. And at the heart of the network are about 10,000 nodes. And the nodes keep the books and relay messages. And so if you buy coffee with Bitcoin, you'll broadcast that to the network and then all the nodes will take account of this and add it to the pool of transactions. What's novel about this is that there's no leadership, there's no central node, and there's no board of directors or officers. This is all done by a protocol where essentially through incentives and competition, people update the books, but it's completely decentralized so that nobody is a gatekeeper, nobody has the power to arbitrate disputes or exclude anybody. And in terms of security, this is actually extremely valuable because even if half the network is taken down by a power outage or an act of war or a terrorist attack, there is so much redundancy that you've still got thousands of nodes in other parts of the world that will continue to operate. So most banks and financial systems, the stock exchange, have what are called single points of failure that right. if you take out the keeper of the records or the, the node that controls the updating and the validation of transactions, you can take out the entire system and that's a huge security problem. And so the value of decentralization really comes from the security. There's massive redundancy. You've replicated the ledger thousands of times and no one person has the authority to change the ledger or exclude anybody or arbitrate disputes. It's all done by code that is being run simultaneously by all these nodes around the world. So it's governance through cryptography, <laughs> or as the phrase goes, code is law. You know, usually when you think about law, you think about courts and lawsuits, parliaments, Congress, whatever. Here the law comes from software. And if you decide to run the software, you're part of the decentralized community, but there's no one in charge of it. And this is a very right. new idea. Yes, indeed, indeed. Now, Bitcoin, as you as you as you uh, uh, told us, is one of the first things that happened, and that is actually a fungible token, <laughs> and uh, uh, NFT is a non fungible token. But let's first decide, like, what is it, what is a token to start with, and then we'll get into what's the difference between the two of those things. Sure. So a token is simply a unit of computer memory, and the closest analog in the real world is simply a coin. So a penny is a token that's worth one cent by mutual agreement. Uh, we used to have subway tokens in New York where they yes. were worth one trip on the subway. But a token is simply something that can be exchanged with another party for a certain 
product or service of value. Um, a postage stamp is a token. It gets you, you know, the conveyance of a letter and so forth. So, you know, a token is something that stands for a certain right or entitlement, and you probably had to go out and buy or otherwise earn that token. So online, a token is simply a virtual memory bank. And you can put a token worth a dollar or a Bitcoin, or in fact, subway tokens are now held on, um, you know, little swipe cards and in memory, you know, they've become virtual as of about 20 years ago in New York. So there, there are many tokens that used to exist physically and have migrated into units of computer memory. And this is, right. I think, for most people, not a terribly radical concept. You know, most shares of stock are no longer physical stock certificates. They're just computer memory somewhere in a database. So that's right. all that a token really is. And what's the difference between a fungible token and a non-fungible token then? <laughs> so something that's fungible is something created in volume where one unit is a perfect substitute for another unit. So back in the real world, if I had two $1 bills and I owed you a dollar, you probably wouldn't care which one I gave you. And then if we traded those dollar bills, we'd both regard as pretty much an even bet. You know, a dollar right. is a dollar. And if something is fungible, it means that it can be replicated and substituted for if if you lend me a $20 bill, I don't have to give you back the same $20 bill. I could give you any $20 bill and you would be just as happy. And so right. that's the concept of fungibility. Something that is non-fungible is basically unique. There's only one. And if you have that one, nobody else can claim to have it. Even if they might actually copy the numbers, if you can prove that you have the original, it's um, a point of prestige and bragging rights. And this is pretty central to the to the NFT market, I think. Right, right. I, I, it, what's interesting is <laughs> the way that I've been sort of trying to wrap my hand around it is a a, a fungible token is like you said, it's just a dollar is a dollar. But the way I, I actually been looking at non-fungibles is saying it's like a it's like a unique currency that I have, but there's only one of them. <laughs> it's the one it's the one coin I have that controls everything. But that yeah, value can go up and down, though, relative to other ones. That's the thing that's different about them compared to a fungible one, right? Yeah, you know, we have a very simple idea in economics called the law of one price, which is that okay. a dollar should be worth a dollar, whether you're in Topeka or San Antonio, or, you know, it's, it's the same everywhere. And you get a certain universality of value. But right. the non-fungible asset is precisely the opposite. That it's a unique asset with a unique value, and you cannot basically create another one, at least right. not one that is provably identical to the first. Uh, so so, so that that is basically the basics of an NFT. It's the same as a Bitcoin, except it's unique to every token that you have. And that's sort of the foundation to it. So why are why do NFTs lend themselves so well to the art community in some ways? Yeah, this is a wonderful question. And the answer, I'm afraid, is not short. So <laughs> people have collected art and invested in art for you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, at least since the Renaissance, if not before. And we have museums with trophy items like the Mona Lisa and the Louvre and the Night Watch 
in Amsterdam and the Rijksmuseum and so forth, where these things are deemed to be priceless, even, you know, because there's only one and it's in this museum and so forth. Now, the Mona Lisa is arguably nice to look at, and there are many copies of the Mona Lisa in, in every art history textbook, and you could hang one on the wall of your house, but everyone knows that the real one is in the Louvre. And it's not just that people have that point of reference, but that it's impossible to make a perfect copy of the Mona Lisa. You know, these are 500-year-old brush strokes with paint that has decomposed a little bit that even, you know, if somebody wished to, you could always say that's a pretty good copy, but I can tell it's not the real thing, you know, because this brush stroke, this shading, you know, whatever is a little bit off. And if you really want to see the real one, you got to go to Paris to the Louvre. Now, digital art is quite different because it can be very beautiful in the same way that the Mona Lisa is. But unlike the Mona Lisa, you actually can make a perfect copy of every pixel. But what you cannot do is prove the authenticity that it's the first one, the original copy, because this comes from the true NFT holding a position on the blockchain. And the blockchain is the ledger that is behind all of these decentralized networks. So it's a, a way of keeping data that allows you to prove that you have the true original copy. And as people know, this has always been a problem in the art world because Art gets stolen, it gets seized by armies in times of war, and there's disputes not only about who's the true owner, but whether something is actually a forgery. And the blockchain allows you to overcome many of these questions of what we call provenance. So it's, you know, gives you a degree of provable ownership, which has been long sought in the art world. But conversely, it doesn't prevent someone from making a perfect copy. So when people have argued for years, what's the real value of the art? Is it, does it come from the beauty, the aesthetics of being able to hang it on the wall and look at it? Or is it from the bragging rights and the prestige? And I think the NFT market pretty much resolves this age old debate in favor of the second hypothesis. If you want to brag, I have the original. And this guy over here says, well, I have a perfect copy. It's just as good to look at. And people say, yeah, but it's not the original. This guy has the original. So it's worth you know millions of times more than your little copy. And I think this is really very interesting and maybe even a little discouraging because it, it says to the artist that it's not necessarily the beauty of your work, but the, um, the prestige of being the first person in line to buy it that you know, is really the fundamental source of value. Right. Well, and there's actually, I've, I've spoken to many artists and I'm going to talk, there's, 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 it's, it's actually gotten quite nasty in some, some of the artist world about what's going I'm on sure. in the NFT market. And we'll get to some of those discussions, but more specifically, the NFT itself is the token. It doesn't actually have an image. or right. a, So it is a representation that is tied to something, right? Typically so you it don't actually what's called a pointer. And it will point okay. to a file that holds the Beeple JPG, which can be a very right. large file. Sure. So, so it's it's really like, think of your house being recorded in the registry of deeds. You know, the registry doesn't hold the actual house, but it holds a lot of characteristics about the plot number and the surveyor's drawing, you know, all that that allows you to identify the location and various other aspects. That's really what the NFT does is give 
enough information to authenticate the true version and it fixes it in such a way that no one can go back and delete, edit, or modify the original entry because of how robust the blockchain is as a recording system. So the image itself has to be saved in a place that's never going to change in some cases, right? Yes and no. Um, it can be enough to simply take a code of the image, a, um, a hash code is typically the cryptography that's used, and depending on exactly what type of asset you're speaking about and so forth, but um, the image itself may contain a reference back to the blockchain or the blockchain to the image. But often, since these are all digital, they can be reduced to a type of cryptography that allows you to prove which is the unique original. Right. If that makes sense. Yes, a, hash, a hashtag makes total sense now. That 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 does allow. So you can say, well, as long as the hash is matched, and you know you have the original. <laughs> right, and people are doing this not just with art, but with things like birth certificates and university transcripts and so forth. Anything that okay. you want to authenticate, you can put the hash of that on the blockchain. Interesting, interesting, and we'll, uh, that's good because I want to get to what else. <laughs> Since art is, you know, this thing that we we're, we're going to be discussing today, what other things could possibly be use NFTs as a way of authenticating them? You mentioned yeah, birth certificates. It, it's an and stuff almost like that. endless list, and okay, if you look at accounting, which for mm -hmm. many people is very boring, accounting is a business of updating ledgers, and People may have seen the balance sheets of corporations. We mentioned the registry of deeds at the courthouse. Uh, the government keeps ledgers of social security numbers and immigration data. There, there's ledgers everywhere in life. And most of the people who work in government and really most of the people who work in business and finance, their job is to update these ledgers and keep them accurate and check on each other's work. So the whole audit industry does nothing more than make sure the ledgers are accurate. The last big innovation in ledgers and record keeping was 700 years ago, which was double entry bookkeeping that came in in the early stages of the Renaissance. So wow. back in the day in the 14th century, double entry bookkeeping was a huge advance. And the principle is fairly simple that for every debit, there is a credit that the balance sheet has to balance, so assets equal liabilities. Um, what this does is give you some simple checks that give you some confidence that the books of a business are kept accurately. And when this came in, it promoted confidence of investors so they could raise money to invest in the seagoing voyages, things like the Dutch East India Company grew. And the, the whole development of commerce over the last five, six, seven hundred years wouldn't have happened but for this big advance in record keeping. Now, 700 years go by and then the blockchain arrives late in the 20th century, almost by accident. There's interesting stories of how it's created that we can go into. But what this is, is a major advance in record keeping. And we take this for granted that records are kept in ledgers without ever thinking much about where does the ledger come from and how do you design a ledger. But what you're looking at here is a very significant advance and one of the most important things in not only business and commerce, but even more so government. And you know, anyone who keeps track of statistics needs to be using an accurate and secure ledger. 
And we now have a much better tool as of 1991 when this is first introduced. And what you're going to see is not only financial records, but I think most government registries and things like um, real estate, stock market, you know, share ownership, um, almost anything that people keep track of, universities are an easy one. Anything where someone might have an incentive to forge or change or backdate the data can be made much more secure by putting it on a blockchain. So with the university transcripts, people lie all the time about their academic credentials. You know, I got this degree from NYU and I got an A in that course. And it becomes much harder to do that once the thing's on a blockchain and you can't have Ferris Bueller breaking in and changing his grades in the middle of the night and so forth. Medical records, pharmaceutical trials, which are often forged. You know, there's been big scandals in these areas. Bring in blockchains and you don't have to worry about this anymore. You know, it's just a hugely important advance that transcends the financial world. And keeping track of art is one nice part of this, but it's um, it's going to be big in pharmaceuticals, in you know, healthcare, vital statistics, uh, border security, all kinds of areas. Interesting, interesting. Uh, so I do. This does lead to an interesting question because obviously the other thing that's that's been happening in NFTs is that they're using the Ethereum blockchain, right? And right. I mentioned blockchain, right? So Ethereum obviously is different than the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, and there are many, many blockchains out there. They're not just those two, but those two tend to be coming in the news, being right. news a lot more. What differentiates? What makes Ethereum the blockchain of choice in the NFTs that people are using right now? Although they're probably other ones as well. But can you explain yeah. a little bit about that? No, there are, in fact, new ones being rolled out all the time. But Bitcoin was the first major application, and it took 18 years. The blockchain was created by guys at Bell Labs in 1991, and it was like a pure research idea. No one found a practical application until Bitcoin arrives in 2009. Wow. And some of the early Bitcoin people were frustrated that it was fairly limited. Bitcoin can only send coins from wallet A to wallet B, and, and that's it. What Ethereum was designed to do was to take contingent instructions, like David will pay 10 to Chris if it's more than 80 degrees outside, or if he's two hours late to the meeting. In other words, you can use it to replicate insurance contracts and financial uncertainty of, of all kinds of types. And if you think of Bitcoin as a successor to the banking and payment system, Ethereum, I think, was really designed to take on the insurance industry and risk management. So it was created by a teenager, this guy named Vitalik Buterin, who's one of these children of math professors. He's too smart to go to school and so forth. And he grew up in Canada and was an early adopter of Bitcoin. He was a founder of Bitcoin magazine when he was something like 14 or 15. And by the time he's 19, he gets frustrated and decides he's going to create this Ethereum blockchain that will be much more versatile. So Ethereum essentially runs code. And if you put a transaction through Ethereum, you're really asking it to invoke a computer program that's stored off of the blockchain. And Vitalik created not only this backbone, which he calls a world computer, but also a lot of templates for different applications that people might wish to use on Ethereum. And 
among these templates, one of the early, very successful ones is called ERC-20, which allows any user to create their own tokens. And if you go back to the initial coin offerings that were very hot about four years ago, a large majority of those used Vitalik Buterin's template. They were called ERC-20 tokens because the code is basically a fill-in-the-blank exercise of this one protocol that he has made available. Mm -hmm. So I think this kid was a genius because he not only had an ambitious vision of a platform that's turned out to be very useful, but he's also found ways to get people to use it. So the NFTs are in a somewhat later protocol. Many of them are called ERC-721. So ERC is a type of code or template that people can use and modify as the case may be. And um, Vitalik has been very shrewd about getting crypto people to adopt these protocols and run them on his platform even as opponents are building platforms that arguably have more capability, more versatility. He's, he's benefiting from being not only the early launch, you know, the first guy in the market with this product, but also I think a much better marketer than some of the other blockchain promoters who are out there. Um, very, very interesting guy. I've told my students from time to time that this is probably the most important person in finance in the world today. He's, he's now like 23 or 24. But, you know, almost single-handedly, he's bringing huge industries to their knees. And the art world is just a small piece of this, but a very interesting one. Well, what what so the 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 key behind here uh, behind this that is important to the art world is this idea of this smart contract, right? So this is the smart contract that can be tied to the the, the ledger, right? So what what explain what the soft the smart contract can do and how is that going to benefit the art world? Yeah, the smart contract. It's important to realize is not a new idea. Um, there's a law professor from Hungary named Nick Zabo. And he wrote a manifesto back in 1997, which is well before Bitcoin, saying that we should use decentralized computer networks, if and when they ever exist, to write self-executing contracts. At the time, it was very futuristic. But if you and I reach an agreement, like I will sell you my used car for $8,000, we've exchanged promises, but then we both have to basically live up to what we've promised. The contract, in other words, has to be enforced by mutual performance. Now, what you would really like is to have a contract that enforces itself. And a well-specified contract, this is the argument of Zabo, should be replicated in a computer program. You know, if A, then B. And once C happens, then I'll do D. And if a well-written, a well-specified legal contract into a computer program, I don't have to worry about the other side defaulting. And this gives me much greater confidence to enter into the relationship. And Zabo points out that the original smart contract is probably the vending machine. That rather than going up to a counter and offering $2 from a guy to pour you a Coke who may put in too much ice or cheat you on the change, you can just put the $2 into a machine with a high degree of confidence that it's going to kick out a cold beverage of predictable quality. And it turns out that vending machines date all the way back to ancient Rome, you know, that they've been used to overcome this problem of the other side 
cheating or not working hard enough or not living up to the promises, it promotes confidence on the part of the user. And that's what a smart contract does as well. So Ethereum is really built as the host to smart contracts that, you know, what you and I could do is agree on some type of complicated real estate transaction, and there might be collateral and escrow and all these other restrictions, but this can all be programmed up. And then when we launch the contract on Ethereum, it executes itself. You know, the rent is paid every month. If the rent is ever not paid, the collateral is seized and moved into your account. And there's really no limit to what might be done here. And a lot of the interesting problems arise in connecting these back to the real world. Um, you know, if it really is a sale of real estate, I can probably convey title over the blockchain, but I still need the sheriff to get you to move out if you turn into a squatter. You know, right. that there are certain limitations that are, are still very interesting, but it's opened up a whole new area of the law because you now have these contracts on automatic pilot that are self-enforcing. You need the courts, maybe not so often, but you need them probably for different things than you might have needed them in the past. So in the art world, um, one of the early applications was fractional ownership. There has long been an idea that the original creator of a work of art should get a 10% perpetual royalty. And I think this is even the law in the European Union, now, but it's been proposed as a way to let artists enjoy the appreciation value of their work that may not happen for 20 or 30 years. But the problem has always been keeping accurate records, you know, locating the artists, figuring out who now holds clear title. And in the music world, especially, there are huge problems of royalties and record keeping and so forth. But the blockchain allows you to program this in advance. So no matter how many times the work of art is transferred, it can not only be tracked, but no one can go back and cook the books because there's a lot of shady accounting surrounding creative work with you know things like motion picture royalties and so forth. And the blockchain has the promise of being able to overcome this and to allow artists to fractionalize, that's the verb we use, but to subdivide and share out certain percentage royalties over either a perpetuity forever or over maybe 20 years or 50 years, whatever period they wish to specify up front. So there's a lot of interesting academic work proposing schemes for artists to be compensated in the future based on these smart contracts that are connected from the creation of the work going forward. And there are certain companies now that are entering this business and promoting these as, as products that art galleries may want to adopt and, and connect their artists to and so forth. Now that we understand sort of the, the, the smart contract, and th that's going to pretty much disrupt the art community in a lot of ways, especially the art gallery community. Is that true? It could. And, you know, especially if you're talking about digital art, the gallery can just be in the cloud, you know, right. online. I think um, it certainly has a role to play with the old master market. And there's an interesting question in the background that the people who possess art often don't want the ownership to be tracked in the first place because they're using it to launder money or evade capital controls or whatever. But to the extent that we wish to have accurate ownership of art, um, it may greatly reduce the role of the gallery and the auction house who have typically played a certification role 
in authenticating ownership and keeping long-lived records and so forth, that this can now occur in a decentralized way in the cloud in a way that people have a lot of confidence that the records are not being changed. So um, we do have startup companies. Um, Verisart is one of, of many, Lockeye and so forth. I, I don't want to leave anybody out, but there's a lot of new players moving into this space. And what they have their eye on is the market that's been dominated, I think, for hundreds of years, really, by galleries and auction houses who you know, provide the role not only of bringing buyer and seller together, but also of validating and, and recording the transaction in a way that many people up to now have been willing to take at face value. Yeah, and additionally, I think also the you know the specifically as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, like the CG artist specifically has been left out of the gallery space, yeah. and this is a method for them to be able to do that. So I think that's also interesting. Now, another big controversial thing that's going to take a little, it's going to take us a while to get through, is the idea of gas and what gas is, and sort of lead through that process because this is obviously something that people are equating the fact that them selling uh, 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 you know art on a NFT is the equivalent of burning in a coal mine worth of, uh, of, of material and uh, destroying our planet. So, but let's get to the bottom of it and explain, first of all, what gas is and why is it considered to be, you know, such a, such a big carbon footprint on, on what we're doing? Yeah, th this is a interesting area that we would ordinarily spend about three classes on in this semester, of course, but... <laughs> There are people who keep the books and update the blockchain on Ethereum, on Bitcoin, on all of these, and they are called miners. And what the miners do is compete with one another for a prize. So when this began with Bitcoin in 2009, the prize was 50 Bitcoin for whoever could solve a cryptography puzzle and win the right to update the ledger. And Bitcoin is set so that this occurs every 10 minutes. The prize on Bitcoin gets cut in half every four years. And so this has happened now three times. And rather than 50 Bitcoins, the prize is six and a quarter. But Bitcoins are selling for about 55,000 each. And so if you win, if you're the first one to solve this puzzle and update the books, you're going to get a reward on the order of $330,000, which is a nice piece of change. And as a result, many people are trying to do this all around the world. Anyone with a laptop computer could do this. But the reality is that there are big bunkers of supercomputers who are throwing an awful lot of resources and energy at this. So the system on Ethereum is very similar to Bitcoin's with a few different designs in the constraints. And so Bitcoin is once every 10 minutes, there's a competition to try to solve this puzzle. In Ethereum, it comes much more quickly. It's, it's five times a minute or roughly every 12 seconds. And with Bitcoin, there's a royalty that is essentially paid by everybody because it's issued, the, the new coins are issued by the network. With Ethereum, the user has to pay the mining reward and the name for this is gas. And so to pay the gas on the Ethereum blockchain, you have to put up some of the ether tokens, which need to be sufficient given the complexity of the contract to execute the contract over its whole life. And in the end, people will compete to win these tokens because they're very valuable. But 
where the energy burn comes from is all those computers around the world burning core and using up electricity trying to solve these puzzles that are essentially massive trial and error exercises. So this has become quite controversial among the environmentalist sect that you've got a lot of people mining Bitcoin, mining the Ethereum blockchain who are devoting energy to updating an electronic roster of transactions. And there are some people that find this to be socially useless. And you know why should we burn all this energy just to enter numbers in a ledger and so forth? But the reality is that it, it provides security. This is precisely where the security comes from is the amount of effort and resources that would be needed to build a new block onto the chain. And whether this is socially valuable or not is really highly subjective. The fact that somebody's willing to pay for it to me is a good enough answer but there are many people who are deeply concerned about it. But really the energy that's being used is really just a computer doing computer work and using the power of the computer, right? That's the energy that's, that's being used in, uh, in yeah. this way, right? And the computer of course needs to be plugged in and there's a question of where the source of the electricity comes from. But most of these mines as they're called are being built near sources of renewable energy where it's essentially free to turn a wind turbine in northern Canada where nobody else is being displaced. Right. So I do think these concerns are overblown because there's strong incentives to use renewable energy that has marginal cost of zero. But nevertheless, the the sheer volume of energy being used is to some people very horrifying. It's just for Bitcoin about as much as a medium-sized country like Argentina was the last comparison I said. And Ethereum uses maybe 30% of the energy that Bitcoin uses. So even in its own right, Ethereum is using as much energy as a smaller country right now. And the good news for Ethereum is that they are in the process of migrating to a different system that will not right. use nearly as much energy if this migration is successful but it is still being very closely watched and we're not there yet. And I can't say there's a lead pipe guarantee that it's actually going to work. Well, I'm gonna to get to that in a second because I actually have been trying to study this and I'm gonna go into like proof of stake versus uh, right. versus uh, proof of work. Uh, but, but generally speaking, I mean, if the people are really concerned about the amount of computer power that's being used, uh, doesn't like just using Facebook, for example, uses a huge amount of, 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 of computer power, right? Like just no, Facebook there are itself. There all kinds of comparisons of, <laughs> right. and, and the first one that gets brought up is how much energy is used by the regular banks. You know, how much does JP Morgan use and so forth? Right. And we never really think in these terms, but we burn electricity for a lot of things of questionable social value. You know, how much right. is used on memes on TikTok and so forth. And, I think if this were a true problem, there are clear ways to deal with it through taxation and regulation of the electrical grid that um, we have the tools, but we typically don't put value judgments on different uses of electrical power that, you know, your electricity uses better than mine because you're doing something more important. Um, we, we let governments intervene in the market if they think the consumption is too high. Right, right. Uh, okay. Well, let's let's talk real quickly about uh, about that. How is Ethereum two going to change a lot of that? What is the promise behind that? 
So in classical mining, which is called proof of work, it's basically a bunch of people competing to solve a puzzle by guessing random numbers to find one that fits. And these are very long random numbers with like 18 or 19 digits. And so discovering them is not so easy. So many resources go into this and it's called proof of work, literally because there's a lot of work that has to be done by your computer. Proof of stake is a totally different system where a lottery is held. And you may have exactly the same set of people who enter the competition as the ones who enter the proof of work. But rather than trying to guess random numbers more quickly than the guy next to you with a slower computer, you just pick somebody by chance. You pick a name out of a hat and say, you have won the block. And it's very likely not an equal lottery, but it's proportionate to your stake in the network. And the stake can be some statistic as simple as how many coins you own, or more commonly, how many coins you own times the duration of ownership. So it rewards long-term holders of the asset. So it's an idea that's actually been around for five or six years with some smaller coins. And the attraction of proof of stake is that running the lottery is almost free. It takes virtually no energy. And it has the same degree of unpredictability as the proof of work does. And so it may preserve many of the desirable properties about nobody knows who's going to update the next block on blockchain. So it might be much harder to commit fraud and so forth. But so, so it, it removes the miners at this point completely, right? Well, no, the miners are asked to enter a lottery. You know, put down your picks and shovels and, and look at your lottery number. Look at your bingo card and see who won. Got it. Got it. So, but, and, so th but they don't have to spend a lot of time trying to solve a puzzle anymore. Right. No, they're just kind of hoping. And, <laughs> and the way you get to be a miner is to build a big stake in the network. So that's a little bit different. Right. And there are some proof of stake systems where the miners actually campaign for office and get elected. And so it's a small set of maybe 24 people who win the confidence of the rest of the network. And they, they can have these elections very frequently, like every hour or something like this. But it's, um, it's a way of simplifying the whole exercise and, and minimizing the, the effort that's required and so forth while still preserving the, uh, the element of chance and uncertainty that's pretty central to this. That's okay. Well, that's very, very interesting. And I think that's going to be uh, really, really interesting as, uh, to, to think about as well. But I want, based on what we're talking about, I mean, we've been able to, to simplify the idea or, or really uh, understand that NFTs can apply to a huge number of things. Do you think the world of NFTs is going to start to make a difference in other digital assets of things like games and things of that nature as well? For sure. I mean, the most popular NFT, as far as I can tell at the moment, is the NBA players. Um, I forget the name of the product, but I know that my son, who's in the sports management program at Syracuse, is all over this thing. <laughs> and um, the, the NBA players' likenesses are not works of art. They're more like the basketball cards that I collected 40 years ago, you know, when I would go to the deli and buy a pack of 10. This is the modern version of them. He got... Um, was it LeBron or somebody's NFT and was able to flip it on eBay for a few hundred dollars. So collectibles generally, not just, you know, precious works of art, but, you know, all kinds of things like comic books and so forth might be essentially transmitted by way of attachment to NFTs. And really any 
industry with large amounts of data, whether it's pharmaceuticals or air traffic control or you know, used car ownership or whatever, you may see the tokenization of those assets is, is a verb that we're now using. So rather than registering your car at the Division of Motor Vehicles and having to stand in line and wait for Marge Simpson's sisters to say, well, see you now, um, you'll just have a token that represents the car with the VIN number, and you would pass that token to whoever you wanted to sell the used car to, and that would replace the ledger at the government's Division of Motor Vehicles. Um, all kinds of ownership applications could be attached to tokens and, and already are, in fact. But I expect this is going to grow very, very quickly. And um, you're going to see a lot of tokenization going on of valuable things in, in every direction. So another interesting question that sort of came up as I started to think about things, because like you said, it's like you realize that this is going to change everything, right? Everything's going to change in a lot of ways. And yeah. so one of the one of the things that has been coming up a lot, especially in the world of digital goods or digital the digital world in general, is something about, you know, Tim Sweeney, who I'm sure you probably have heard of, he's the CEO of uh, Epic Games, and they make Fortnite. And so he's been touting the idea of the metaverse, right? So that Fortnite itself is just going to become a world that you go into that's completely virtualized and you can do anything you want inside of this world. So that world itself, it seems to me that there's going to, if there's going to be a currency or some kind of means of exchange of goods, it's going to be involving tokens of all sorts. Do you think that's the case as well? So, yeah, the one I'm more familiar with, and you've probably heard of as well, is Decentraland, where... <laughs> It's another virtual world that has, you know, urban planning and sales of property and so forth. And they have their own currency called mana. And the the mana from Decentraland trades in the real world. And, you know, people take it off the platform and sell it to people who have some interest in, in playing in this space or living in this space, whatever verb you wish to use. And... I think it's important to realize the history that video games have played in this, that we've had these so-called um, massive multiplayer online role-playing games, the MMORPGs, that for many years have had their own financial systems. And even before Bitcoin, in fact, I think the Bitcoin people and a lot of these folks in the world of virtual currency and digital assets are taking their cues from the economies that have been living inside of video games for, as far as I can tell, 15 to 20 years and some of the earliest examples. So, you know, when you hear people talk about these economies inside of video games and fantasy worlds, they've actually existed for quite some time now. And what gets interesting is when these things start to trade on investment boards alongside the regular currencies. You know, we could trade dollars and euros in yen, or we could trade coins from World of Warcraft or you know, Decentraland or whatever. It's pretty much the same activity. And there, there are markets that have existed for a long time with these virtual currencies. Now, I think the weakness is that the game promoters have been in the role of benevolent dictators. And often there's very little that keeps them from inflating the currency and driving the value of the old currency down and so forth. But if you have a true decentralized platform with a blockchain-based currency system that may resemble Bitcoin, you don't have to worry about the person, the so-called trusted third party, abusing their position and, and debasing the currency. 
And so I think, um, you know, fantasy gaming has played an important role in the history of this. And looking forward, there are very ambitious plans to create these parallel universes with their own currency, their own economies. And I wouldn't write these off. I think some of them may become very valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I've, I've played a fair number myself and I actually, there's graphs that show values of gems to gold and all that exactly. stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just like the real world. Yeah. <laughs> Just like yeah. the real world. And it changes and, and free, day by day. <laughs> free of many of the frictions and, you know, taxes and things that we have to deal with in real life. You have more pure versions of capitalism sometimes online. And this is sometimes interesting for research. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, this has been really great, and you know, as we're as we're wrapping this up, I just sort of want to ask you one last question: What if if I'm an artist out there and I say, okay, there's some people are out there making art and they're selling them as uh, on NFTs, and I don't know if this is an ethical thing to do because of the environment or et cetera, or, or how complicated it is. What general advice would you say to, for people to get into this or to research this area? What's the best place and resources for people to sort of get a better idea of what's available to them? There are a lot of online courses being offered through platforms like Coursera and there are people giving lectures. I have a colleague at NYU, Amy Whitaker, who gives public lectures from time to time. And I think at the moment, the best place to look is for online videos on YouTube that seem to have reputable people attached to them. And so, you know, I, I think Amy is not a bad person to start with. In fact, if you want to get into this for an hour or two. But I wouldn't lose sight of the fact that the real value of the work of someone like Beeple is from the creativity of the work itself, you know, and, and that's not going to change that what what people created with those 5000 cells, each of which is itself very interesting, that took years. And in, in their own right, those are all works of art that have been combined in a particularly interesting way. But the value added doesn't come from the platform, it comes from the creativity. And the platform makes the marketing of the work much easier. But you know, I think you're not going to get rich if you're good at the computer science part. It's, it requires you to be a good artist before you start thinking, what's the best way to market my art? And I think for digital art, not only do you have these new platforms, but you also have a whole army of crypto billionaires who have some affinity for digital art just because it's digital. This is one of the nice things about digital art is that a lot of the very rich people in the world today are under the age of 40 and got rich doing something digital. And so they're predisposed not to like Rembrandt nearly as much as they might like Beeple. And you've got a whole market of people with the same concerns about wealth management, avoiding taxes, hiding assets from the government and taking them across international borders. And this digital art seems to cater to them in a particularly good way. So um, this is a very interesting problem for things like the real art museums, the physical museums. A lot of their donors are now much younger and they want a much bigger role in the management of the museum than the 70 or 80 year olds who used to donate. And the art world's gonna have to come to terms with this, but I think the nice thing for digital art is it's like a built-in market of people who are predisposed to like this. And I think it's a real opportunity and people you know, like people have been recognizing this and patiently catering to it. And I think it's probably going to grow and grow.
That's great. Well, thank, listen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and I really appreciate this. I think it's been very useful. Uh, and uh, honestly speaking, I think I'm I'm going down the rabbit hole and you are one of several podcast episodes that I'm going to be doing on the subject and covering a lot of this. So it's been really great to, to learn from you. And I think we're definitely our community of digital artists are going to be very, very uh, indebted to that information and where do we get it from. So I really appreciate it, David. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed the discussion we had very much.